When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Fitzpoot, Fitzpoot, retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and retired NASA. I'm the author of a book we call Father of the Mother Planes. You are listening to the Dr. Sky Show. Thank you for listening to our show. Mr. Fulton, one of the most phenomenal airplanes, I think, of all time was the XB-70 and B-70 bomber. You flew it. Talk about the B-70 bomber. It's a big airplane to start off with. It's a... Uh, Stainless steel, honeycomb, unusual construction. It's not my favorite airplane, but it's my second favorite. B-58 being the number one. But the B-70 was uh, 550,000 pounds, 185 feet long, and uh, five Mach 3. I have flown it Mach 3, and uh, 50-some-odd flights to the airplane. I enjoyed all of them. Had some tragedy in the program, but it was a good airplane. Absolutely, sir. And let's go back one minute for the B-58. I think that's also a beautiful airplane. But you tell our audience, you flew that to over 85,000 feet, and you received the 1962 Harman International Aviation Trophy. That's a beautiful airplane. It's a great airplane. It had some real problems at the beginning. But uh, look around the Air Force pilots who had the opportunity to fly. They'll all tell you they thought it was fine. It's a beautiful airplane, sir, and I want to thank you for spending the time today. And one last question. For all the young students out there and people that aspire to aviation, what do you recommend they do if they want to be pilots of airplanes of the future? Um, main thing is to get some education, get some knowledge of the area you want to be in, try to get some light plane flying, and then move on up to the heavier stuff if you have the opportunity with the Air Force or with the commercial operation. Airline pilots still have jobs available. Hard work is the biggest part of it. Well, Mr. Fulton, I want to thank you for your service to the United States of America and to the Air Force and all of the airplanes that you've flown. I thank you, sir, for your time and look forward to talking to you. Folks, if you'd like to learn much more about our special guest, Fitz Fulton, a legend in aviation, get a copy of his book entitled Father of the Mother Planes. Colonel, I want to thank you for joining us here on the Dr. Sky Show. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Arizona is one of my favorite places. Met my wife there, and we were married there. Hope we have an opportunity to meet and talk airplanes one of these days. Well, I'd like to congratulate you on being married for well over 70 years to the love of your life. And again, thank you, Fitz Fulton, for joining us today. A great history in the story of aviation. Today, our very special guest, Fitz U. L. Fitz Fulton, Jr., born back on June the 6th of 1925. Our tribute to Fitz Fulton continues as I read here an article by Carl Posey from Air and Space Magazine back in December of 2013 entitled The Greatest Test Pilot You've Never Heard Of. Carl Posey introduces us to Fitz Fulton. The photograph shows a boy of five or six, jug-eared and happy, holding onto the wing strut of a biplane. Taken in rural Blakely, Georgia in the early 1930s, the image captures the joy afforded by small pleasures during hard times. But what boy would not have cheered 
by being close to a real honest-to-goodness airplane? His mother evidently sensed the effect on her son, for she labeled the photograph First Love. The first of many. The boy would spend his working life in the close, sometimes perilous company of aircraft, taking them to war and exploring the extremes of their performance. His logbook, with some 17,000 or so hours of flight in more than 200 types of aircraft, would tell the story of how aviation evolved from the 1940s onward, for this Georgia boy would be present in every crucial branching out of that evolutionary path. From pistons to jets, subsonic to supersonic, he would fly everywhere and everything, all aircraft, great and small. Now 89, Fitz L. Fulton Jr., Fitz to family and friends, still has his mother's photos. I like that photograph, he says. We protected it. He thinks the airplane was a Kinner-powered bird. He never flew in it. He got his first flight several years later when a cousin sprang for a dollar ride in a Ford Tri-Motor. After his parents separated, Fulton and his two siblings moved with their mother to the larger Georgia town of Columbus, where, among other things, there was what was called a real airport. He had a 4,000-foot grass runway and a fixed-base operation that flew J-3 Cubs and Taylor Crafts. In the time-honored way of air-minded youngsters, he began hanging out at the field, doing occasional chores and reaping occasional rides. Eventually, he settled into a more organized barter system, sweeping the hangar, washing and fueling the airplanes, pushing the airplanes in and out of the hangar. Each was good for five minutes of flight, which he hoarded, then spent 20 minutes at a time. In June of 1942, 17 years old, just out of high school, and not yet driving a car, he soloed in a J-3 Cub. In 1943, with the U.S. Armed Forces needing pilots to serve in World War II, he entered the United States Army Air Force's Air Cadet Program. Fledgling pilots of movies and myth invariably opt for single-engine training. With an eye on becoming fighter aces, Fulton wanted to fly the twin-engine Lockheed P-38, though he so chose multi-engine aircraft training. But when the P-38 failed to materialize, he followed the less glamorous road to transports and bombers. It was one of those less-traveled roads that would make all the difference. A career pilot of big airplanes, Fulton would fly the bombers that dropped the X-15 and other experimental speedsters at Edwards Air Force Base in California during the time now regarded as the golden age of flight test. And that experience led to opportunities in the space shuttle program. I certainly welcomed that opportunity to drop the X-planes, he said. Not, he adds quickly, that he was uniquely qualified. Anybody could have flown the motherships. But I had a lot of experience by then, and I like to think I helped to train some of those people. In 1945, his own training led him to Davis Monthan Army Airfield in Tucson, Arizona. He reported for duty on August the 14th, but the officer checking him in the next day wondered why he bothered to show up. The war was over. Although somewhat devoid of flight, the Tucson assignment had an unexpected reward. It was there that Fulton met Irma Beck, to whom he has now been married for almost 70 years. Fulton was then sent to Roswell, New Mexico, where the 320th Troop Carrier Squadron was based. After winning a slot as co-pilot on Douglas C-54s, Fulton played a supporting role in Operation Crossroads, an atomic weapons project for which an armada of captured and surplus warships had been assembled in a lagoon of the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. The first test on July 1, 1946 would detonate a fat man plutonium bomb a few hundred feet above the lagoon 
to see what a 20 kiloton airburst would do to the ships and tethered animals below. A few weeks later, a second bomb would be detonated underwater. For Fulton, crossroads meant long hauls from Roswell to Kwajalein, the largest of the Marshall Islands, ferrying the accoutrements of nuclear warfare. But the flight that stands out for him took place the day after the first bomb test, when he flew a C-54 carrying scientists and Air Force brass out to see what the bomb had done. Flying over the lagoon at about 200 feet, Fulton toured the affected area. It hadn't occurred to him that the flight might expose him and his passengers to harmful levels of radiation, but his attention was fully on the fleet of ruined warships. In June 1948, in what became the opening political salvo in the Cold War, the Soviets blockaded road, rail, and river access to the Allied-controlled sectors of Berlin, then a divided city. As the Allies mounted an impossibly difficult release effort, the Berlin airlift, Western air crews with transport experience were suddenly very much in demand. Our tribute to the greatest test pilot you've never heard of, Fitz Fulton, continues. During Central Europe's formidable winter, Allied aircraft operated into and out of Rheinmann, Tempelhof, and Wiesbaden, only a few minutes apart. Undeterred by severe icing conditions, low ceilings, and zero visibility, sometimes Fulton remembers you didn't know you'd landed until you felt the tires on the runway. It built up my confidence, he says. I've always considered myself a pretty strong instrument pilot, but weather was a big problem. When the airlift ended, Fulton headed back to the United States, this time to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, where B-29s were testing new instruments. But the heat and humidity of Florida's panhandle proved more than Ginger Fulton's lungs could tolerate. Her asthma attacks got so bad Fulton and Irma feared that they might lose their little girl. A sympathetic commanding officer stepped in, and Fulton was offered a slot in Southern California at what would soon be called Edwards Air Force Base. He didn't know about much what was going on out there, but he was certain that the change in climate would help his daughter. Fulton took the transfer after settling in California's high desert. Ginger's health quickly improved. Once jet-rated, Fulton began expanding his repertoire. In the early 1950s, borrowing an airplane was as easy as borrowing a jeep from the motor pool. And when he wasn't at the controls of a test aircraft, Fulton sat in as co-pilot or flew the chase aircraft. Much of test piloting is the repetitive, rather humdrum stuff that makes its way into manuals as performance parameters and airplanes maxima and minima. Of course, nobody became a test pilot to generate data. They joined for the moments. One of those moments was a night flight that Fulton made in a Lockheed F-94A, which as he turned back to Edwards Air Force Base, lost all electrical power, rendering the aircraft's flaps, lights, and some critical instruments inoperable. Unable to set up a normal night landing, Fulton improvised. He stalled the airplane, which gave him the known airspeed, and from there worked out a letdown approach. Asked today if that flight or any flight constituted a really bad moment for him, he says, to me, troubles were opportunities. The best pilot in the world can get in trouble. I'm not a defeatist. I like to work on problems that are solvable. Early two weeks into his term as a student in the test pilot school at Edwards, Fulton learned he was headed for Korea, where the conflict was entering its second year. Unlike some of the older test pilots, he had never flown in combat. On September the 18th, 1951, he arrived at K-8, the airbase at Kunsan, South Korea. A day later, he began combat missions in the Douglas B-26 Invader. His commander at Edwards had promised Fulton 
he would try to retrieve him when he finished his 55 missions in Korea and the promise was kept. By May of 1952, Fulton was back in the test pilot school, which he completed that November. Not quite 27 years old, the unflappable soft-spoken Air Force captain resumed his career as a test pilot of all work. He was soon shuttling between Edwards and the Convair plant in Fort Worth, Texas, to test fly the company's mammoth B-36 bomber. My learning was rapid, he wrote of the bomber in his autobiography, Father of the Mother Planes. It had to be, because the B-36 was a high-maintenance airplane. We seldom completed a flight without having to shut down one or more engines. With rear-mounted propellers, engine oil leaking at high altitude would freeze and hit the props, and then be thrown into the fuselage, sometimes even penetrating the airplane's skin. After that, he came back to Edwards for a bomb drop test from B-36 and test of what now sounds like a harebrained scheme, a B-36 carrying an RF-84F Thunderflash, which would be deployed from and recovered on a retractable trapeze-like device extended from the bomber's belly. The project was the first of many encounters Fulton would have with big ships carrying small ones. He also began testing a new family of light jet bombers, among them the Glenn L. Martin Company's XB-51. One of Fulton's closest friends, Air Force Major Neil Lathrop, was killed during a low-altitude roll in the experimental aircraft. Fulton, flying a B-29 bomb drop test that day, saw the coil of black smoke rising from the dry lake. It was the first time Fulton lost a good friend to a new airplane. It would not be his last. The Air Force had also become interested in the Royal Air Force's English Electric Canberra, a twin jet which Martin was bringing out in the United States as the B-47. Fulton was assigned to the test flights. On one B-57 flight, as he came out of a loop, he discovered that the control wheel had decoupled from the flight control system. Pushing the wheel full forward had no effect on the airplane. When things go wrong, some pilots yell on the radio, that's not my style, says Fitz. You have procedures. If you have a problem, then you call in and they offer suggestions. When Fulton reported the problem, the consensus on the ground was that he should bail out. But he thought that if he used the elevator trim for pitch control, he might be able to save the airplane. He managed a fast, straight-in landing on the dry lake, for which he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The B-47 would become his favorite airplane for traveling. And for several years, he flew it in air shows. The XB-52 and the YB-52, the first prototypes of Boeing's latest entry in the strategic bomber sweepstakes, were ready for testing in 1953, and Fulton was assigned to the project, which operated out of Moses Lake, Washington. Most of the time, he flew the F-86A Pace airplane to calibrate the new aircraft's speed and altitude readings, or the chase aircraft. When the F-86 wasn't needed, he flew on the bomber. Before long, he was checked out in the XB-52 itself. The experience with the B-52 prototype would serve Fulton well in the years to come. Through the 1960s, the NB-50 was the airplane he flew with an X-15, or an experimental lifting body, tucked under the bomber's starboard wing. He flew the mothership for 92 
of the 199 X-15 launches. In all, he was the pilot for some 150 launches of the manned aircraft. The first stage of the X-planes had begun at Edwards in the 1940s, when the Air Force and what is now NASA began exploring the terra incognito of transonic and supersonic flight. B-29s and their descendants, B-50s, took off with small rocket-powered aircraft on their bellies. After release, the X-plane pilot lit the engine for minutes, and these long-powered flights would continue and eventually well beyond Mach 1. Then on empty, the little ship equipped with skids would glide to a dry lake landing. Fulton was a natural choice for piloting the motherships. He flew as co-pilot on the first two X-1 drops and as pilot on all his subsequent mother plane flights. He flew the B-29s for the slightly larger and more powerful X-1A and B and the Douglas D-558-2 Skyrocket. Fulton flew a B-50 for the Bell X-2, a hotter, swept-wing variant of the X-1. In September 1956, the new design made Fulton's colleague Mel Apt the first man to fly faster than Mach 3. It was Apt's first flight in a rocket-powered airplane and his last. Tumbling out of control in a supersonic turn, the X-2 killed him. It was a sad day for all of us, wrote Fulton, and that the same high-speed instability later showed up on other new high-performance airplanes. The late 1940s was also the era of the right stuff, the term coined by the author Tom Wolfe to describe the amalgam of courage, cockiness, patriotism, airmanship, and rowdiness required to be a test pilot. Fulton, although endowed with everything but the rowdy part, he drinks no alcohol, coffee, or tea, was not really conscious that he was going to become another of aviation's golden ages. I didn't recognize it until later, he says. As far as the right stuff, everybody talked about it, says Fulton. When the film was released in 1983, he saw the movie at the base theater. It was good entertainment, he says. Everybody laughed. The women didn't like it, says Irma, because it made us look a little stupid. Fulton had another motive for keeping clear of the cowboy side of test piloting. I was so appreciative of getting to fly airplanes. To me, it was, don't tilt the boat. By the mid-1950s, aircraft designers had turned toward the triangular delta wing, which, while presenting some challenges at lower speeds, offered to transform the dreaded sound barrier from a wall into a membrane through which the aircraft could pass with barely a ripple. In the United States, Convair was leading the trend. Overseas, the delta wing had made its way onto Britain's Avro Vulcan and the Vickers Valiant Bombers and the Anglo-French Concorde. Fulton was sent to Boscombe Downs, the British counterpart to Edwards, to learn from Britain's experience. He flew both the Valiant and the Vulcan, and later the Concorde. Accustomed to the almost weatherless Edwards sky, he was somewhat bemused by the British test pilot's willingness to fly in any weather. His host explained that if they couldn't fly their tests in English weather, they couldn't fly their tests at all. The quick trips to see Britain's Delta Wing bombers were in fact a prelude to Fulton's next assignment. Down in Fort Worth, Convair was building the B-58 Hustler, a four-engine delta-wing bomber with the speed and high-altitude performance of a supersonic fighter. Under the fuselage, it would carry a nuclear payload in a large streamlined pod. After it dropped its bomb and discarded the pod, it would come home clean. The B-58 had its quirks. For one thing, there was a large amount of fuel to be wrangled. You go supersonic. You have to move the fuel aft, Fulton explains. And when you slow down, if you don't move the fuel forward, you go unstable, you spin. 
Some would say that they were real bad moments, he says. But these were test pilots standing in line just to fly the B-58. Visiting General was the first Air Force pilot to fly the B-58, and Fulton was the second. Despite its idiosyncrasies, the Hustler would become Fulton's all-time favorite. It was super fast for its time, he says. I was project pilot and helped shape the airplane. And there was something else, he said. I'd never considered myself a true fighter pilot, he explains, but I do enjoy flying airplanes with only one seat. Eventually, Fulton became the project pilot for the B-58 at Edwards. His responsibilities included evaluating the Hustler's behavior when near maximum gross weight, an engine was lost on takeoff. The test involved accelerating to the decision speed and cutting one of the outboard engines. At or above that speed, the pilot must continue the takeoff, no matter what. On one such test, Fulton had cut an outboard engine just before taking off at 190 knots, that's around 218 miles per hour, when the right main gear's tires, all eight of them, began to disintegrate. Fulton felt nothing in the controls, but noticed rubber fragments spewing out on his right. He continued the takeoff. However, and after a lookout and lookover by fellow test pilots in an F-100, turned the hobble B-58 toward home. Landed at 100 knots, he remembers. Not the usual 150. Pulled up the nose, pulled it up slow, set it down, and dropped the nose wheels for steering. In September 1962, Fulton flew a B-58 with a payload of 5,000 kilograms, slightly more than 11,000 pounds, to 85,364 feet, setting world records for both 2,000 and 5,000 kilogram payloads. For those flights and his other work with the B-58, he received the International Harmon Trophy, naming him, and I quote, the world's outstanding aviator for 1962, end of quote. President Lyndon Johnson awarded him the trophy at the White House in September 1964. In his book, Fulton writes, During the ceremony, I was standing right behind the president and could read his notes. It was all over so quickly. The Harmon Trophy is big and heavy, but I carried it back to the hotel and onto our airplane for the trip back to California. That same month saw the first flight of North American Aviation's XB-70 Valkyrie prototype, a Mach 3-plus strategic bomber intended as a successor to the B-52. Fulton flew chase in a B-58, while he and several colleagues spent a couple of years learning about the radical new bomber, an airplane, he said, that would be close runner-up to the B-58 in his admiration. Fulton had by then come to an important decision regarding his career. Offered a posting to the prestigious Air War College at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, he declined, fearing it would put him behind a desk. In April of 1966, he filed his retirement request effective at the end of June. Meanwhile, he continued flying the Valkyrie. On June 8th of 1966, Fulton was scheduled to fly the XB-70 in a test run that would segue into a calendar photo shoot for General Electric, showing a close formation of GE-powered aircraft, an F-4B, T-38, F-104N, F-5, and the number two XB-70 prototype. But word came that a pilot was needed for an X-15 drop from the NB-52, and Fulton was reassigned. The X-15 drop was subsequently canceled, but it was too late to change the pilot roster for the XB-70. Major Carl Cross would pilot the XB-70 with Al White as co-pilot. The Valkyrie completed its test program and settled into a photo session. For some 40 minutes, all went well. 
But then the F-104 drifted in toward the bomber, drawn perhaps by the XB-70's wig vortex. The fighter bumped the larger airplane's wing, then nosed up and inverted, raked across the bomber, shearing off all of one of the vertical stabilizers and most of the other. The F-104 pilot was killed. Second later, the Valkyrie rolled into a violent spin, losing part of one wing. Al White successfully ejected in his escape capsule. Carl Cross went down with the aircraft. I've always thought that if I'd been on that flight, it wouldn't have happened, Fulton says, adding that it wasn't his abilities that it would have prevented the accident. You change the players, you change the outcome. NASA wasn't quite finished with the Valkyrie. It wanted to use the remaining prototype in a high-speed flight research program with the Air Force. Fulton, now a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, came to NASA with the airplane as primary project pilot, working with Donald Malik, then a research pilot at NASA's Edwards-based Dryden Flight Research Center. Like everyone in the test program and the pilot community, Malik had heard of Fulton, but this was the men's first time working together. Fulton and Colonel Joe Cotton, who'd been the primary Air Force pilot on the Valkyrie, began a checkout program for Malik and Lieutenant Colonel Ted Sturmthal. Flying the XB-70 was quite an experience for me, Malik said. Fitz and Colonel Cotton were the instructor pilots. Ted and I flew with one of them on all the test flights. A senior pilot and a junior pilot. I flew a total of nine flights. I was able to fly four of these flights from the left seat, and I was proud that Fitz did not look on me as just a co-pilot. He shared the flying and the testing. Fulton and Malik would then fly something even hotter the Lockheed Blackbird in the form of the YF-12A and the YF-12C, which was actually the highly classified SR-71 in disguise. The pilots each made more than 100 flights in the Blackbird. Fitz and I alternated flights for almost 10 years, from 1970 to 1979, says Malik. I always had the feeling that I was a better pilot because I was able to fly with him and share programs like the Blackbirds. As the Blackbird research ended, they arranged for an unforgettable going-away present for their comrades. Just before the last YF-12 was returned to the Air Force, they let each pilot in the office fly the Blackbird to Mach 3. A key element in developing NASA's space shuttle was finding a way to airlift the orbiter. NASA chose a stock 747-100. Named primary NASA project pilot Fulton, he checked out in the 747. I felt fully qualified but was surprised that so little time in the airplane was needed to make it legal for me to fly it, Fulton writes in his book. All he needed was a 30-minute flight and one landing. NASA 905, as the first shuttle carrier was called, was flown to Seattle for nine months of modification at the Boeing factory. Its first flight with the shuttle was made in February of 1977, with Enterprise attached to struts on the 747's upper fuselage. A few months later, the seven explosive bolts tethering the shuttle were triggered, and Enterprise soared away on its historic glide to the Edwards runway. The 747 had a strong pitch down. When the release occurred, writes Fulton in his book, I had to pull the control column aft with about 90 to 100 pounds of force. There was still a slight increase in the nose-down pitch trim. The indicated airspeed increased to approximately 320 knots for a few seconds, just like a glider releasing from its towplane the shuttle turned to the right after launch, and we turned to the left. The shuttle 747 combos, NASA operated two of them, remained an amazing sight to the end, and never more so 
on the final flight across the United States in 2012. By then, they'd taken many a star turn, not least the one at the 1983 Paris Air Show where Fulton flew the mother plane with the orbiter for the crowds every day. Fulton retired from NASA in 1986, then spent three years as a test pilot for Burt Rutan's Scale Composites in Mojave, California. He and Irma live in Thousand Oaks, California, nearly an hour's drive from Edwards. Grounded by Parkinson's disease, he misses having an airplane in his life. I'd still be flying if I could pass the physical, he says. Although he flew transports and bombers throughout his career, Fulton never quite got over the glove-like fit of smaller aircraft. He owned a Fairchild 24, and because he wanted a four-seater in which he could teach his family to fly, a Cessna 172. His last airplane was a Meyer Little Toot, home-built, a tiny biplane he saw after delivering the first shuttle to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. While technicians practiced loading the orbiter onto the carrier and unloading it, Fulton wandered off to a nearby airfield where he saw the Little Toot. He thought it was a good-looking airplane that would be fun to fly. Back at Edwards, he and Irma decided to buy it. He returned and picked up the Little Toot for a five-day ferry back to California the Georgia boy, and his biplane. The Dr. Sky and Photo Recon salute to the greatest test pilot you never heard of, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Fitz Fulton. A reread of an article by Carl Posey of Air and Space Magazine, December of 2013. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.